when I was in that terrible storm with these waves that were towering over the boat, and I remember looking up at them, we were running with the storm, so they were behind us. You were running down the wave. I remember looking back and like, holy cow. And it would have been very easy to have been overwhelmed by it, but I right. I'm not going to focus on those. I'm going to focus on the things I can do. What is it on this boat right here and now that I can do to get through the situation? And that's essentially what we all need to be doing in terms of managing ourselves and starting to think sustainably about all these things. What are the small things that I can do in here now? Don't worry about solving the whole problem. Like It's going to take a bunch of people to work together in concert to solve the problem. And it's going to take time. But in the middle, right now, right here and now, everybody should be focused on their little steps that they can do and do them. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone and you don't have to wait for others. Katie continues the line of world-class sailing champions I've had the honor of interviewing for this podcast who have translated their athletic success to leadership in their sport, business, and beyond. What success in Katie's case? How about competing in three America's Cups, including being the youngest member of the first ever all-female boat, two around-the-world races, as well as the famed Sydney Hobart and World 1000 Extreme Catamaran races? Watch the videos of these things. They're incredible. She's also a lawyer and president of the Rising Tide Leadership Institute, she just got back from an Olympic racing regatta in Miami, which followed placing second in the Sydney Hobart race about a month ago. And that Sydney Hobart race, Ocean Respect Racing, sponsored her boat to reduce pollution, not just increase efficiency or recycle more, but to reduce pollution overall. We talk about seeing plastic in the remote ocean, as well as in much greater density closer to shore, especially America's shores. It's really sobering to hear, but I think very important. So let's listen to Katie. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Katie Pettibone. Katie, how are you? I'm very well. And yourself? I'm very good. Wishing I'd hit record like a couple minutes earlier because we've been joking <laughs> around and laughing so much. And I hate to keep that from the listeners. I've been trying to think of how to begin this because our last conversation I loved and that led to conversations with other people that I loved. And then I feel like I could t- start from the past and talk about things like America's Cups, and several America's Cups and all women's America's Cups, or I could talk about the present. And I guess the recent past was you just raced in the Sydney Hobart race in something that's near and dear to my heart, not just sailing, but also whom you sailed for, which is environmental. And you also, we would have recorded a bit earlier, but you were just doing some Olympic class sailing in, I believe, Miami. Yep. Yep. Now I'm going to leave all those for teasers for everyone else, because I think anyone would want to hear all of those things. And then I've just been looking through some of your web pages and, and feeds and things, and I see a bunch of pictures of you with motorcycles, and they look pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. <laughs> so is that like a side hobby, or is that is it like what's with the motorcycles? I mean, they look pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's a side hobby. I 
I would consider myself a recent rider to boot. I didn't really grow up riding dirt bikes or things like that. But my dad had a motorcycle when I was a, a, a child and I rode on the back of it and loved it. And then I had in my 20s, one or two boyfriends, ex or well, one was ex-military special forces, another was current and they had bikes, loved it. And I thought to myself, I don't need a man to have a bike. I can get a bike myself. And so I, I went about taking all the motorcycle courses and I, I loved it and um, got some really good advice about what are good bikes for women and found myself with owning a Ducati, which I love. And it's kind of a, a side thing that I have that makes me really appreciate fine machinery, the environment, the fresh air, and also going fast. So it's interesting because I think of sailing as fundamentally, I, I guess you can solo sail, but I feel like especially the racing, it tends to be very team. It's a vehicle that uses a team and motorcycles. Is it now that the when you ride is a guy hanging onto you in the back? Because it usually feels like it's the <laughs> other way around. Nope, nope, it's just me. <laughs> and is it a solo? It, it feels like it's fundamentally different than sailing in that way, the solo versus the team activity. Well, you know, it's funny for my racing, you know, the motorcycle actually, and it's ironic, it's actually very similar because it's attention to detail. It's um, anticipation, being very aware of your surroundings and, and uh, processing a lot of sensory inputs, you know, what's happening. You know, ideally, I like riding with a group because I do like the social dynamic and what's one of the things I like about teams. But the bike itself and, and all the things about it are very much like sailing. And, and I will say, ironically, when I did the last Olympic campaign for the uh, 2016 quad for Rio, I found that the motorcycle was actually helpful in my training because the boat I was sailing was a high-performance catamaran, which semi-foiled. And the thing about these boats is that they accelerate and decelerate very quickly. And so the same is true for the motorcycle. And so the, the body got used to uh, those kinds of G-forces or lack thereof and, and just reacting quickly. And it, it actually was helpful for my sailing. <laughs> Do you like taking vehicles to their, to their limit? I feel like sailing, like I see sometimes these spectacular crashes of million-dollar boats that people just take it to the limits is... Are you doing something like that? Uh, I don't like taking them to the limit. I like knowing the vehicle, whether it's the bike or a car or my sailboats. I like their, knowing their characteristics and being able to pull out the performance of them and knowing exactly you know, how they're going to behave and, and what's going on with the dynamics of it. I hate crashes. Crashes are no fun, but I've had them and you've got to know how to get out of them. And certainly in sailing, you know, that that uh, sailing in the Southern Ocean where, you know, it's huge waves and no one's going to rescue and there's no, uh, you know, boat standing by to help you if things go south, uh, you figure it out pretty quick. <laughs> and is that, we're talking Volvo, the... Yep. Because yep. when, yep. when I see the videos of that, it's unbelievable. And it's like house size waves. And can you tell us a story? About it? Did you crash down there? Is there any... Sure. Yeah, no, I remember we were this, which Volvo, which one was it? I've done the Whitbread around the world, 97, 98. And then that was the last year that it was actually called the Whitbread around the world race. Volvo had bought the property and then it became the Volvo Ocean Race. So I think, where was that? Was that the Whitbread? Um, no, maybe, you know what? Maybe it was a Volvo. We were sailing down there and massive waves. We had a spinnaker up and right on the edge of control. It was, it was seriously fun but also it was like i i likened it to riding a tiger 
I mean, you're hanging on because if you fall off, it's going to be bad. And um, we were going along, going along. And I remember thinking in my head, I wonder if we should, you know, get the spinnaker down. And this was getting a little on the edge of, you know, Harry in control. And then all of a sudden the steering cable broke. (laughs) And then the boat just rounded up into this wonderful, massive, Wipeout, and you know it's on its side, head to wind, and the spinnaker is is streaming out like a massive flag, just you know flapping and you know causing potentially great damage to the mast. It was it was all uh, crazy. So um, I jumped down to the leeward wheel, and on those boats, we specifically had designed the steering cables to be independent. So that when you had a situation like this, or let's say somebody washes into one wheel and damages the wheel, you can still do- drive from the other wheel. So I jumped down into the other wheel, but the, the problem is you have to flow over any of the appendages and you're on your side. So I quickly figured out how to drive the boat you know, in a way that it actu- actually created flow over the appendages so that we could then turn back down these massive waves and get everything sorted out and under control again and fix the the broken side. So yeah, that was exciting. That was definitely exciting. It sounds like everything's falling apart and you got your head about you in, I mean, there's this old phrase in uh, leadership that anyone can captain a boat in calm waters. The real metal comes out when the, the waves are white capped and the wind is howling. And it sounds like that's what happened. Yep, for sure. And, you know, I I will say another story we had, uh, you know, we were training and we're doing this run across the Bay of Biscay, which is to me the most treacherous waters people think the Southern Ocean is. And I think the Bay of Biscay is far worse. And sure enough, this massive storm came through and the biggest storm I to to date have ever been in waves that towered above our masts and our masts are 86 feet tall. And I remember, you know, you just, you just handle it. You just deal. And, and honestly, I also have it like, how, how bad can it be? I mean, we're all supposed to land the dangerous part and the good part. So I always had in the back of my mind, well, if we wash ashore and we're, you know, whatever, we can always swim. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of a, a, a you know, simplistic view and probably not very, uh, depending on the rocks that you land on good or bad. But, um, you know, there were people in that boat that couldn't deal. There was a person who wouldn't come up on deck because they basically, their systems crashed down and they just couldn't handle the situation. And another guy as well who didn't handle the situation. And it's not a male or female thing. It's definitely individualistic. And And these are people that you didn't pick people kind of like hoping for the best. You picked people who you were confident. There's a selection, like you pick people that you were confident would make it. And yet among those people still, when they're actually in the situation, sometimes people lose their cool, yeah, let's say. Yeah, yeah, So, And, you know, honestly, some of the people, until you're in that situation, and, and I will say upon discussion after with the skipper, I, we were sailing mixed teams and I was with this phenomenally renowned British skipper who'd done six around the world races and totally salty. And he said, you know, I've done all this racing and I've never experienced conditions like that. <laughs> Cause afterwards I said to him, yeah, I, that wasn't really that fun. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, if you can handle that, you can handle anything. And I thought, Oh, well then, okay, I can do this around the world race then. <laughs> so let's get a little context for, I imagine most people I've only sailed less than a year now. And a lot of this stuff is new to me. And so I imagine for others, it's yet more new. So I think a lot of people, View sailing is uh, like an upper crust kind of uh, pastime that's fun, not 
a life and death. I, I love how you like 86 foot uh, masts and then waves above that. And then like, and then like, that's not enough. You're like, and you might hit rocks. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that too. And actually I thought when I first heard about Olympic sailing, it didn't, I looked, I didn't realize this. It, sailing has been an Olympic sport since the very first modern Olympics. And one of the appeals to sailing for me is that, you know, for a little while in college, I got into uh, rollerblading and I don't, no one rollerblades anymore, but sailing has been around since the dawn of history. I love that it's, it's been around forever. I mean, all of human history. So what is sailing, what is sailing like for you? What, what is racing? You know, it's funny. Racing to me is, is taking this wonderful sport that is so complex. And, you know, I, I will also add, there's this kind of ongoing discussion within sailing as in the whole world about whether it's a lifestyle or a sport. And the beauty of it is it's both. And I think probably there's some things like equestrian you would probably liken that too, which is you can do it forever and you don't have to race or compete or, you know, jump huge fences. But sailing for me is kind of just, a, it's a passion. It's just a lifestyle, but it's also a place where I get to express my competitive spirit and and be active and, and you know, take on a bunch of different complex problems and solve them. And so it, I, you know, I, and in the meantime, I've gotten to sail around the world and I've made incredible friends in every part nook and cranny all over this globe. And, uh, it's just been a wonderful thing. So I, it's hard to really kind of say what, what is it, this one part, the racing I do love because there's so many types of boats and they are very complicated and nuanced. And, and I enjoy the uh, intellectual problem as well as the physical challenge. When you said intellectual, I thought it's, you got the weather, you got the currents, you've got the boat itself, then you've got all these other people. It's like on multiple levels and, and dimensions of things going on all at once. And then you've got the competition. Have I captured a fair, yep. a fair amount yeah. of it? I'm sure yeah, there's more. pretty much. <laughs> what part have you, are you drawn to? Is it, it seems like leadership and being a skipper seems like a big part of it. I do love the um, the team atmosphere. I love working, and I will say, I love working with even whether it's on a boat or in other contexts. I love working with dynamic people who who work together and, and come up with a you know an ability to uh, to perform that's above all single selves. And so I love you know because of all those complexities, I love the team sport in sailing. I think it's the camaraderie is just fantastic. And so I, you know, and, and what's also special about that is you, sailing is definitely international. So you get not, the camaraderie encompasses different viewpoints and ways of being from all kinds of nations. And then, you know, it's also very much gender neutral, although at the highest levels, it's still pretty, pretty male dominated. Um, and more and more, you're seeing women at the top levels. And so I just, that was the thing that drove me to the sport when I was younger and I played volleyball and soccer and track and field and all these things. It's like, oh, but sailing, I get to compete with boys and people work and together with people of different ages. And, and that was really, really, really drew me to it. You set a lot of new uh, records, records, or, I mean, you pushed the limits in this area. I mean, you, the first all women's America's cup boat, is that right? Yep. 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 Was that difficult or was that welcome? Was that challenging or, or was it just like, oh, I just felt like doing it? It's funny. So I was the youngest on that team. And um, for me, it just kind of was the next step in my uh, development 
I mean, an incredible opportunity. Never thought it would happen, but with the Bill Koch's energy and his vision, it, it, we we did. We had an all-women's team. I will say it challenged the male, the the historical male kind of view of women sailing. And the America's Cup couldn't essentially, although if you look back to the J boats, they had, you know, there would be a, a woman on board as one of the owners' wives or or such, but. It really did having a women's team there challenging, you know, the men's teams with the physicality of these 80 foot boats was definitely, you know, breaking stereotypes. And the media really responded to that. And this was kind of the time before the internet. There was, you know, there wasn't like we had the web to do the coverage. I think if, if we had it now, it would blow it up. But, but it, it was covered by all the major media outlets. And, and it was incredible that the public outpouring of support, both male, female, different countries. I mean, everybody was just taken with this because we kind of, it was a serious glass ceiling that was broken when you had a women's team in the America's Cup for the first time ever. And to fast forward to a couple months ago, you were also in an all women's boat. And I feel like it get some attention, but it wasn't, I feel like the glass ceiling had been broken long enough that it's not standard, but maybe it's not remarkable anymore. I feel like that's part of the goal. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, we, you know, we weren't the first all women's team in the, in the Hobart there. That had been done already multiple times. And the numbers of women who are competing in the Sunita Hobart is just great. I mean, obviously we would like to see more, but I think it, it was really great to see a team like ours where it was a bunch of women who had tremendous professional sailing experiences such that anybody would want this team, whether, no matter what gender you were. Right. And so that was, it was interesting because we were all talking about when we looked at the roster that Stacey Jackson put together, this was a team that you would put together to win anything. And it wasn't about male or female. It literally was a boat of top-notch sailors. They just happened to be all women. And so part of me wants to switch over and start segueing into environmental things because, uh, well, can you tell us about that boat? What your, I guess the sponsors? What? Yeah. So the sponsor, we had two sponsors. One was the Oatley family, who's a long history in sailing, Sandy Oatley, you know, was there racing on our, our brother ship that was a bit bigger and it, the Wild Oats 11. But so that was one of the sponsors and that was phenomenal. The other main sponsor was 11th Hour Racing. And they've really made a huge impact in the marine world on bringing attention to clean seas. And so Stacy Jackson, who had worked and done a lot of, of stuff with them during the Volvo Ocean Race, got them to sponsor the boat and, and continue the messaging and, and bringing awareness to the need for getting rid of single-use plastic, rethinking the way you do things, and, and the need for us to really continue to focus on ocean health. And so they were a big sponsor, and that was our, a huge message for us. And, and I think that was absolutely awesome, certainly well taken. And everybody, I mean, it was Australia. I'd love to see us do something up here in the U.S. with it, similar. I think it was really, really impactful. I mean, there was a day where the girls were on the beach uh, picking up trash and they have programs where the, they go out in the water in the harbor, in the Sydney Harbor and are, you know, combing the deep depths of it to get the, this old plastic and debris and trash. And so I think we really need to be, to be more aware of our use of this stuff. And it really struck me how so much, you know, we, even when we go to provision the boat, you know, you go to buy fruit go in the store and it's like, oh, here's a little plastic bag to put your two pears in because you do, God forbid your other pair, your pears touch the tomatoes that you're <laughs> yeah. buying or the avocados. Let's have mm-hmm. a plastic bag for all that, which is 
ludicrous. <laughs> I want to know something on top of that is that you guys are world-class athletes. And one of the major goals of this podcast is to get public figures, influential people, athletes and celebrities and politicians and so forth, to act by act according to the values that they talk about, not just say we should have these values, but actually live them. Because so many people feel like if I act but no one else does, then what I do doesn't matter. And the flip side to that is, oh, these world-class athletes are doing it. I guess people in my community are doing it. I guess it's time I do it too. Yes. I, and I love the fact, so then, you know, we do that, we do the Sydney to Hobart and that message is just resonating extremely well. And I think waking a lot of people up in Australia and certainly New Zealand. And I, I mean, I think this message has actually been percolating around the world, but I could just really feel it and see it when we did that race down there. Then I came back to the US and I'm off into Miami to, to go do this Olympic class event. And again, huge message. We, the Olympic venue down in Miami, um, they handed out for all the boats, water bottles, and they had water filling stations. And it was like, the, I even took pictures of myself next to all these, these big boards and the messaging about it. And I was like, this is amazing. You know, this is, this is happening everywhere. We just need to keep having that conversation and pushing it into other areas. I mean, it, we're starting to really see the value and the benefits in our world, which to be fair, we're on the water, it's in our face, but we need to, we need to continue to push it into places where it isn't just, you know, hey, if you use the ocean, you should be thinking about this doing it. We need to be pushing it into the lands, you know, hey, by the way, plastic's making its way up into the food chain. So if you have cats or if you have any dogs that are eating any kind of fish, there's probably plastic in them now, you know, whereas, and then it's getting further and further up. And so it's, it's going to affect all of us. We all eat, you know, you could live in Kansas, but if you're eating fish, you, you better be worried about it. Very sobering. And I, I, sailing has this connection that, I don't know, IndyCar racing doesn't, I guess there's going to be the embedded carbon in the boat, but sailing itself is pretty free. And yet, I think sailing, sailors, I'll ask you this question, I have a feeling I know what the answer is. You know, do you have a story about being as far away from land as you can imagine and there and seeing plastic or something like that around? Is that common? Yeah, I mean, we've seen it. It just depends on what type it is, you know, what when you're off the coast, what you're, you know, what you're saying, you know, whether it's old fishing line or whether it's single-use bags or or, you know, whether it's a bucket or some plastic container that contains something right at some point. I will say I was horrified and really struck by as an American, you know, we, we can be so arrogant and then you go to places like you go into a place, like I remember going into Brazil and, and being worried about sanitation and all worried about that. And, and, you know, that's neither here nor there. I mean, they, it, it is what it is. But when we came up to the U.S. off the waters, I mean, the plastic was insane. By far, the U.S. was the worst for having plastic in the water. Where were you that you saw it? Like uh, off a city or? Yeah, I mean, going into, uh, so going into Fort Lauderdale and Miami, and then it's because we raced up the coast. As soon as you got, you know, close to the water, you know, 10 miles offshore. I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing it just in the water, single use bags, or like I said, plastic pieces or jugs or this, or, you know, that, but I will say the single use bags is where I saw those off of the U S I did not see those in the other countries. You know, we, you see other stuff, but I didn't really see that level of the, you know, the grocery single use bags. 
So how does it feel for you? Because I have ideas. I can tell you how it feels for me. So say you're in a store and someone buys, this is what guess, like you said, two pairs. Someone buys a bag of chips and then they put that in a bag. How does it feel when you see that? Oh, I, <laughs> I just, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard. You see it all the time and you want to say, really? You know, I mean, buy a reusable bag. You know, if you, if you can't carry everything, buy a reusable bag. You leave it in your car. But, you know, I have to laugh because even when I go to grocery stuff, I mean, when I was down even in Miami, we're here in California, we're a lot more aware, so you don't get it. But when I was down in Miami, I was, I had a bunch of stuff and I have, <laughs> I have this big purse that I can like throw my computer in and stuff. And so inevitably I, I get up full of a lot of things. And I'm like, they said, oh, do you need a bag? No, no. And I just start packing my purse up and they're giving me the weirdest looks. Like <laughs> I'm crazy instead of using their plastic. And I'm like, I don't want your plastic. Yeah, you're like, you're the ones who are crazy. <laughs> yeah. I guess you'd want, it's, yeah, people haven't seen a, a bag off a, mile, a couple of miles off the coast and knowing where it came from and making that connection. I guess they, people have this amazing ability to hear about Pacific gyres. And this morning I was talking to a friend of mine in Bali and I said, you know, we were talking about environmental stuff and I just, you know, by the way, is there a lot of plastic in the water there? And his response in its absolute ordinariness is what got me, which is like, eh, of course. And I'm like Bali's pretty far from stuff. I mean, from like big population centers. I mean, there's plenty of population around there, and, but the, it was the way he was like, yeah, of course. Like that's the world we live in. It used to be that was aberrant and now that's normal. Yep. Yeah. So I, part of me wants to continue about that, but I want to go back to some leadership stuff too before getting wholesale into environmental things, because I think you, you also do a lot of corporate speaking, I think, and, and training with people who are aspiring leaders in a totally other context than sport. But is, I feel like sailing because of that team aspect and because stuff comes from so many different directions and is so unpredictable that I feel like you, this type of athlete brings something that others don't. Is it something that business, business leadership, but also other types of leadership, I guess, political and other areas, is it really in demand? And is it something that they have a lot to learn from, from you guys? I think it is in demand. And it, it's interesting because you will see some corporate sailing events. I mean, I think it's definitely a, a thing where people are realizing that sailing is just a great team building kind of vehicle. But I, I also think, you know, I, I look at sailors who've actually left the marine world and they tend to be really successful in whatever they do because of all the skills that you get, as you you mentioned. I mean, you're you're using, used to, you know, having to work with people in, in complex and dynamic environments. And so, I mean, whether it's corporate or political or otherwise, I think, you know, it does make for for somebody being very effective as a, as a part of, you know, whatever quote unquote team that is, you know, and, and I think, you know, I work in legal and political world and I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I always know that there's another viewpoint. I mean, the international teams I've sailed with and the, and also there's a million ways to skin a cat on the boat, you know, and so you have to just be really open and present. And I think that's very helpful in, in today's world. And, um, I do think that the people who sail, whether it's high school, college or onward are just, I think they're really good people to, to have in whatever endeavor you're doing. Yeah, I have to say that the community that I've tapped into, I guess it started with Don Riley, who put me in touch with you. I'm just meeting all these like America's Cup athletes and champions and Olympians and CrossFit people. And it's and everyone's so super friendly, even though I'm such a neophyte to the sport, not even to the sport. I've only learned to sail. I haven't, I guess I've been on boats that were racing, but 
the waves were like two feet high. <laughs> and uh, <You> got wet. <laughs> yeah. And it's such a, I mean, I guess I can't tell if it's the specific group that I've tapped into or if it's just the sport, because partly one of my measures of someone's leadership quality or someone's leadership skills or ability is the number and depth of type of followers they have, people in their community. And so maybe I've just found some really tremendous leaders, or maybe maybe I found a community that's really tight, or maybe both. I don't know. How does, how does it look from the inside? I'd say it's a community that's tight, but I do think, you know, all the people are are pretty outstanding as well. And, you know, like any community, it, you know, we all have our uh, stories where you cringe because you see somebody being a horrible individual and you're like, that doesn't really represent the, you know, we, whether it's the Corinthian spirit or whether it's just a, our sailing spirit. And so, you know, I mean, I think that this sport tends to to have really good people because ultimately the ocean and the seas don't really care. And so if you're alone out there, other sailors, other mariners are really your your allies and your friends that will come to your aid in, in tough times. And so, you know, it is a real community. You, you talk about any of these stories where there are people, mariners who are sailors and then, you know, something goes awry and they have to be rescued. It's the other mariners out there that come to their aid. And so the sea, it's funny because I, you know, the historical uh, writers, you know, would often characterize as the sea is cruel and uncaring. I think it's it's wonderful, but it, it doesn't care. It doesn't care about somebody's victim story or excuses or this or that. It just is. And so you better be ready to meet it. <laughs> Have you ever either bailed out or been bailed out? Have you ever been one of these mariners on either the receiving receiving side or the helping side? I haven't been on the helping side. We required assistance up in the uh, North Atlantic when we were doing the Volvo Ocean Race and our mass broke. Um, we ended up getting a tow from a massive ice Canadian icebreaker um, in some pretty grim, horrible conditions. But, you know, it was wonderful. And I, I will say, just as an aside, you know, both of these around the world races, we broke our mass. The first one, we broke our mass so far from land, nobody could come and save us. We had to get it on the boat and sail the boat with, with our wits and what we had on the boat to the tip of Argentina to Ushuaia. And then, of course, in this particular case, we we were towed by the icebreaker into Nova Scotia. And, you know, although it's not great for competition in both cases, those stops were amazing. And I saw beautiful parts of the world that I probably wouldn't have gone to otherwise. <laughs> so I, I think I was very fortunate. I just think, you know, life's the kind of funny thing where it throws you a curveball. It actually can be a beautiful thing. How do you sail a boat without a mast? I mean, <laughs> someone's like standing really tall and holding it. <laughs> We had 21 feet left of the mast still up. So our bow girl went up. She basically free climbed to the top of it and attached ropes and pulleys. And we took our small sails and made holes and put them up sideways and figured out ways to trim them and attach ropes to them. And we sailed the boat. Wow. And does that give you a feeling of accomplishment or is it a feeling of like, damn, we messed up by letting it break? How did did it break? Was it too strong wind or you like? No, it was terrible winds, terrible conditions, but here's the classic talk about globalization. It turned out that the part, there were parts on the mast that had been subcontracted out and the subcontractor put half as many threads as needed for the loads on the, on this piece. And so they failed. These pieces mm. failed and the mast broke. This is amazing. And that came out in the, uh, like a postmortem. Yeah. 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 Because we had a, we had a mail team and so they quickly 
obviously were concerned about their masks. They didn't, they didn't lose their masks, but they were very concerned. And so, yeah, we had a full, like, cause we had no idea why when nothing had happened, usually something happens. And actually, funnily enough, in the second race where we broke masks, same sort of deal, there were fractures that weren't apparent on visual inspection and the, the mast failed in beautiful, calm waters, very nice, you know, 12 knots, sunny sky, just folded over, you know, just kind of went with a breath. And um, yeah, in the postmortem, you kind of find out the uh, structural failures. There's so much to this sport. And one last thing I want to touch about it before going into the environment part of the podcast is that I really would never have expected the sport or the the lifestyle to be as accessible because it from it seemed shrouded in elite rich Kennedy type stuff and I and the only reason I got into it was that I was not flying and wanted to go to places off of North America and I wasn't going to take a cruise ship and so sailing seemed to fit the bill and now if I compare what I spent on flying it's so small compared to what what then what I spent on on sailing is much less and I want to help spread that it's not this snooty upper class thing. I mean, I guess there is that element to it, but but that's a lot of things are like that. And I want to help that message get out there. Do you have a, a view on that as well? No, I, I think it is definitely not just a snooty class, you know, kind of sport. I mean, I am not upper class. I'm Midwest, you know, middle class. Um, and we have wonderful yacht clubs. And, and, you know, I think about my hometown yacht club port here in Michigan that was built with the equity and the sweat of, of all the members, my grandfather and cousins. And, you know, I just remember being a kid, they basically built that, that yacht club themselves brick by brick and everyone pitches in and there's no paid bartender, everybody, the members bartend. Right. And so it's a it's a wonderful community. I mean, sailing definitely is not a snooty sport, though. To your point, there is that element, and that and you know what, that's fine too. That's beautiful and wonderful. But it's it's a sport that's just it's a family sport that you know you can pick up and do. You don't need a lot of money, and all you need is wind and some water. Yeah, maybe I had some weird. I'm trying to think of why I got the idea that I did because when you talk about that, that does resonate with. I guess more if you're. I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia, so I think of Chesapeake or uh, Boston, where just sailing seems to be there. It's just part of culture. Whereas I was, I guess, more inland, and maybe it's just by geography that I just had this view that just doesn't fit with how I look at it now. Yeah, I, well, I mean, the thing is, you know, it is hard to access sailboats unless you know where to go to get one and where do they tend to be in yacht clubs. Obviously, yacht clubs like golf clubs, you have to be a member. And so that's, I think, where some of the barriers start to come. But all yacht clubs, you know, what or or now there's sailing centers and sailing communities centers. And those are all very much trying to get everybody involved. Because like sailing like everything is fighting for everyone's attention. You I mean whether I don't care what sport or pastime, whether it's, you know, golf sailing, riding, biking, you know, skiing, I, every you know, we're all so busy in our lives that all these things are fighting for survival. And so, you know, sailing used to be I think more prevalent, but we're seeing a little bit of a dip in it because it does, you know, being on a sailboat isn't fast, right? I mean, if you were going to use it as your means of getting someplace, you better have some time because you're at the wind of the wind. So, well, I have to say that for me, it was because it began as replacing flying, what I was very pleasantly surprised to find. Well, first of all, in Manhattan, the sailing clubs, I'm sure there are a lot of them, but the one that I belong to is a non-owner one. 
so that the sailboat, I never have to worry at this state, maybe one day I'll want to worry about these things, but I don't have to worry about what to do with it in the wintertime and things like that, or barnacles. It's just, I go online and I see when it's an open time. And basically every time I've ever wanted to sail, there's a skipper going out and I can just crew on that boat. And so I get all the fun part and I'm out in the water. There's a Statue of Liberty and the Brooklyn Bridge and lower Manhattan. And I'm, I'm no more than two or three miles from home by distance. But once I get on that boat, it's the, the pace of the wind. I mean, I'm not, no 81 foot waves there in the, in the New York <laughs> Harbor, but it's just like whatever stress was in my life, it may be returned when I, when the boat gets back, but it's just so, such a comfortable pace. It's an escape that flying doesn't, I mean, flying has its other stuff to go to other places, but it gives me, I haven't missed going to other places because it's such another world when you're on the water. That's just been my experience. I know. I agree. When you go out on the ocean, it's, it takes you away from so many things. It's another, it's another world. It really is. I think there's something really special about that. Feeling inspired. Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So now I want to switch back to environment, because when you were talking about seeing this, the plastic bags and the single use, I mean, of course, this is a Leadership in the Environment podcast, so you're probably predisposed to see things a certain way, but it didn't sound like you were faking it. It sounded like there was something, it was resonating uh, that there's something, I mean, some people might not, they might say, well, whatever, that's part of humanity, but it sounded like it resonated with something in you. Yeah. It's, I don't think it is part of humanity. And I think it's us being careless and, and selfish and short-sighted and self-destructive, frankly, because, you know, these things that we do and we put out there is always going to come back to us in some way, shape or form. And um, when I have seen it, you know, as, it, to the extent I have, it's just, I think because if you don't go on the water and you're not in the water and you're certainly not on the shores, maybe it's not in your face so much. You, oh, you know, it's that, that notion of, well, if it's not there, I don't have to worry about it. If somebody else is dealing with it, well, you know, somebody isn't and you need to deal with it yourself and everybody needs to be responsible for themselves. And it, it's like anything else, whether it's a complex problem or not, it needs to be broken down into very small steps in front of you, the things that you can do right now. When I was in that terrible storm, you know, with these waves that were towering over the boat, and I remember looking up at them, we were running with the storm, so they were behind us. I mean, you're running down the wave. I remember looking back and, and like, holy cow. And it would have been very easy to have been overwhelmed by it, but I, right, well, I'm not going to focus on those. I'm going to focus on the things I can do. What is it on this boat right here and now that I can do? you know, to get through the situation. And that's essentially what we all need to be doing in terms of managing ourselves and, and starting to think sustainably about all these things. What are the small things that I can do in here now? Don't worry about solving the whole problem. Like it's going to take a bunch of people to work, to work together in concert to solve the problem. And it's going to take time, but in the middle, right now, right here and now, everybody should be focused on the little steps that they can do and do them. It sounded to me of all the things you said there, maybe the, to me, it sounded like the biggest pieces were, and tell me if I misread, but responsibility and being able to act oneself and not be dis, without being dissuaded by the scale of how difficult something might be, but what can I do anyway? 
Yeah, I think the thing is scale can really dissuade people from acting. I mean, can overwhelm a person and you might give up, right? Well, why should I do it? Let's take something that's very common to women around the world, weight loss. You You just got to take those little steps and just keep doing them, you know, and it'll, it'll work out. You just got to focus on it. And the same with sustainability, all of us need to take those little steps. And you and I've talked about this before. It's like you, I mean, people can say, if you have, Oh, I've got to do all these things to, incredibly make my life green. Well, that can be overwhelming. So it's like, start taking the small steps. Don't use those stupid bags for each vegetable (laughs) and each fruit, right? Okay. Take the next step. Don't buy or use the plastic bags in the grocery for God's sake. You know what I mean? And then you start, don't, you know, carry, don't use the plastic bottles of water, you know, carry around a thermos, use those, you know? And so all those things, I think you just start, you know, just taking them step by step. No matter how small the little thing feels, if you don't do the little things, the big things seem really big, but actually, even if the little things are small, after you do it, the big things seem more accessible. They seem easy in comparison. Right. Well, and maybe even not easier, but at least you're on your way to getting to them. Yeah. I mean, when I first started avoiding packaged food, I would throw out my garbage something like once a week. And if someone told me, here's how to get to, so you throw out your garbage less than once a year, that's too much work and I don't really feel like it. And I wouldn't have believed it possible. But now looking back, once I started it, it seems almost inevitable just because each step improved my life. And when something improves your life, then you want to do the next thing, even if it's small. And I, and it's funny because I know you probably, well, we've talked already there, but there was a, a girl that we got to work with in the ocean racing down in uh, Sydney there, and she doesn't use packaged food at all. And they have a, a, a store that they go to and she gets everything is in bulk and you bring your glass jars and you get stuff. And I thought, you know, that's amazing. And I bet that, and she said the very first time she did it, her boyfriend thought she was crazy and was like, what are you doing? Like this, and now he's completely bought into it. And it is your point about trash. They hardly take any trash out and all these things. And it, it's funny because the team from the Sydney to Hobart, we used to have this uh, group chat and we continue to talk about different things. And one of our, I actually think it was Stacy was just recommending a shampoo bar for the hair, which I'm intrigued at trying because I have really thick hair. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, ah, is it going to clean my hair? I don't know, but I'm going to try it. <laughs> so get rid of those plastic bottles for shampoo. Yeah. It's, it's kind of fun to see what the next thing is that you can do. And like, oh, I didn't realize I could do something about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've been, for years I've been doing this stuff and I, I just have leftover toothpaste that I haven't had to worry about toothpaste for because I just am finishing what was in stock. For some reason, I had a lot of it. And, <laughs> let's, and, let's leave that alone for a second. <laughs> and so someday soon I'll have to, I mean, I, I go online and there's plenty of stuff. It's like, uh, I don't know, you mix uh, some scented oils with some, uh, a little coconut oil and baking soda, I think. And there's your toothpaste, but I haven't done it yet. I mean, I, it doesn't sound particularly hard, but at some point I'll do it. Yeah. 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 I'm not going to throw away a tube of toothpaste. I'm going to finish it, but then once finished, I'm not going to replace it with more packaged stuff that I don't need to. Right. Okay. So for all the stuff that you've been doing, you know, one of the things I, I like to ask guests, I invite you at your option to take on something that you haven't done before based on, usually based on presumably your values of, of, I heard responsibility and the taking action and care to take on something that you haven't done before. And again, I don't have to say this to you, but for listeners, not you don't have to save all the world's problems or solve all the world's problems by yourself overnight, but it can't be telling someone else what to do because we got enough of that and something measurable. 
care to try something new that you haven't done already? Well, I'm going to try this uh, shampoo stuff. That's going to be my new. I thought about that actually before I got on this. I'm like, okay, what am I going to try new that I can say that I will report back and how this works? I'm going to try the shampoo and conditioner bars. Yeah. So that will, I bet, satisfy the curiosity of a lot of listeners because I'm sure that for a lot of people, what you just said is new. And they're like, what? Bar soap for shampoo? That doesn't make sense. Bar soap is going to dry. I don't know. I don't know what it would do because my hair is really short and I have to worry about these things. <laughs> but I mean, what would your worry be before if you hadn't had any motivation to try this? Yeah. So I have really thick hair, but it's fine. So it tangles. And it, it's also, it, because it's so thick, it's, it's really hard. To, I don't want to say get clean, but it's just, it's really thick and tangly. So, you know, what concerns me about is A, it, does this actually dry it out? B, does it make it greasy? And C, does it actually clean it? And so, uh, yeah, so I, that's my concern. And then conditioner, the same sort of deal is it just, look, I could, I mean, I could probably put coconut oil on it and that, that would probably untangle it, but it's going to be really greasy. So what is the thing that's going to allow me to, you know, I ha- I, I'm a professional. I work at, you know, in, like I said, political, legal, you know, world, I, I've got to look professional. So is this going to, you know, these are the things it's like, I want to be sustainable, but I got to look professional. So let's, let's meld the two. Does that mean you have to try different ones and get a few and see which one works with your particular hair? Yep, probably, probably so. And brands, right? I mean, different types, different brands, you know, all, all the things that we, uh, you know, us women have to go through. Now, if I just share, went, made my hair close to my head like yours, I'd probably be really good. <laughs> so it's possible that the first one you get works perfectly. It's also possible that it takes you 10 times in a week on, for each or something like that. Yep. No idea. It, it's going to be a project. It'll be an experiment. <laughs> Sounds like something that's been on the horizon, but you were like, uh, I'll get to it eventually. And now there's Yeah, well, I was kind of, I was kind of waiting for my sailing friends to let to report back and what they thought on it. But I think, you know what, I'm not going to wait. And having these plastic bottles in my, in my bathroom are driving me crazy. So, um, cause it's just, you know, they're, you're, they're staring at you every day and you're like, really? I got to get rid of you guys. <laughs> So how long do you think we should take to check back in to hear how it goes? Or should I just hear back from you when it works? I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. I'm probably know in a, in a, probably in a month. Okay. And it's also possible that in a month you're like, well, these five didn't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then I'll be like, okay, so how do I get my regular shampoo outside of plastic bottles? <laughs> oh yeah. Actually the places near me where you can get bulk stuff. I know that they have, Bulk olive oil, bulk soy sauce, bulk uh, vinegar, and bulk of that, um, the all one or none chamomile stuff, which I know some people use for shampoo. Nice. So you can refill the bottles there. Nice. pay by the pound. Nice. We need more bulk stores. I, I, would, I would really believe that that would be really, really helpful. Yeah. I, they're living in lower Manhattan makes it easy. The one near me that I went to went out of business. And then it turns out there's another one that's a co-op, which I like even more. And- it's a mile walk each way, but that's not a big deal. I mean, I walk that far anyway. So yeah, having bulk. Oh, it depends. If I'm coming back because I'm in, an, in the neighborhood and I'm just passing by, I'll pick up a few things. But when I'm low on, the main things I get there are legumes. So lentils and split peas and beans and beans and beans because the pressure cooker cooks them really quick and the nuts. So I get nuts there and nutritional yeast. So usually I'll use like... At one time, I'll buy tons of nuts and tons of, I mean, whatever bag I have, it's completely full. So I'll, I'll come home with like, seriously, 50 pounds of, 
of legumes, of dried red beans, black beans, and so forth. And then I won't really get any more until I run out of all of them. So right now I have a little bit of azuki beans, a little bit of slit peas, and the odds of me going shopping are very small because why go shopping when I can just cook the ones that are here? Right. And that means that I generally go on it like completely empty. And if I'm coming back that way and I pass by it, I'll maybe stop in and get some stuff. Uh, and the same with the nuts. Like I just finish the nuts when I finish them. And also I, <laughs> this is, this is seriously going to get me in trouble someday. Uh, <laughs> I did the stand up routine. And so people, if they look at my blog, they can find it where I was at a, a whole foods once and I never shop at whole foods because it's, to me, it's like a landfill. It's just so much packaging. So I'm there with a friend and my friend shopping and we're in the bulk section and they have these containers that you put the bag under and you fill the bag up. And a lot of times stuff spills out and there's a little tray that catches it. So I'm there and this guy uh, comes and starts taking the stuff in the tray, the almonds and whatever, and throwing it in a trash can. I'm like, why are you throwing this out? Oh. And he says, well, once it's out of the container, it, we can't sell it. It's, it's, we have to throw it away or maybe they could compost it. So now, as far as I can tell, once it's in the tray, it's going to go in the landfill at, and maybe at best composting. And it's still just good. It's still perfectly fine. So when I'm in a neighborhood of Whole Foods, I'll stop in and grab a handful of nuts that they couldn't sell anyway. <laughs> and as far as I can tell, I'm saving it. If that stuff goes to a landfill, it anaerobically decomposes, which means it turns to methane. And I don't see, I can't see any way that it is not making the world a better place for me to eat that compared to it going into becoming methane, which is, a, a, as people probably know, is a very potent greenhouse gas. So it delays my buying nuts at the co-op because I grab hands, hands full of nuts uh, with some regularity at the Whole Foods. That is awesome. And, and it's gotten to the point where I know where all the Whole Foods are near me because they're tasty. <laughs> that is great. And you know what's funny is what strikes me about that, and maybe this is also driving the packaging, is that my immediate reaction was, oh my gosh, what if somebody sneezed on them? Or what about the bacteria from somebody handling it? And then I immediately thought, you know, and your point is well taken, nothing's happened to it. You should eat it. I think a lot of the packaging is driven by this marketing kind of push that, oh my gosh, everything's dirty and you need it, you need a package to be able to eat it, make it safe. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's like, you know what they use to fertilize this stuff? Well, I guess now they use fossil fuel made. Uh, fertilizer, but generally it's poop and everyone knows it. (laughs) And that's what makes it healthier. (laughs) Yep. Not that I want to eat poop, (laughs) but (laughs) I, it, yeah, I haven't gotten sick yet eating these things and I can't really see, I don't see people sneezing on them. And yeah, I'm of the mind that, you know, my sister talks about taking the kids out her, my nieces and nephew. And she's like, yeah, of course they should get dirt under their fingernails. That's, that's healthy. That's how they develop the immune systems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's how we keep methane out of the atmosphere. And me <laughs> with a smile on my face with <laughs> almond on my breath. <laughs> All right. So, well, I'd like to wrap up with a couple questions. One is, uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? Uh, I think you, we've kind of hit everything far, far and wide. <laughs> okay. And of course, we'll, we'll talk again. And is there anything, any message to give to the listeners that you'd like to share? Um, I think. You know, we talked at length about it, but it's essentially just if you do one small thing, challenge yourself a day, you know, and and question and just notice, what can I do to get less plastic out there? You know, whether it's a coffee cup or whether it's, you know, kitty litter bags or 
grocery bags or toothpaste. I just think it's, it's just do it. Just do it because everybody taking one small step will help. Now, you were saying that in the context of the environment. I'm curious also, does that also apply to as a world-class athlete who's competed at, the, at, the, at this global level, I mean, around the world and everything? Is it also for that too, if you want to become a great athlete, if you want to become a great leader, does the same apply? Well, I think the attention to detail and taking the small steps, you know, that applies into, you know, training and whatever goal you're setting yourself, uh, whether it's athletic or otherwise, I mean, it's taking small steps and it gets you to a bigger goal. And so, yeah, I think if you have the ability to, to take a small step in your life and reducing plastic, you certainly have the ability to do one small thing and getting out and being healthier, whether it's going to the gym or eating better or taking better care of yourself. So, I mean, it's all the small steps. It's, you know, it's not, it's not losing 50 pounds in two weeks. It's, you know, doing one small thing that helps start knocking the pounds down or, you know, you up the pounds on the gym by two pounds and eventually you'll be lifting, you know, exponentially more weight. Or if you're doing yoga, you know, it's the, I can't get into that position. Well, it's just, you know, you just take it one step at a time and eventually you'll get there. I think that goes for everything. And is that something that happened with you? I realized that I said I was going to wrap up, but I'm really intrigued that I, is it something to reach these waves that could knock down a house? Was it before the 80 foot waves, were there 70 foot waves? And before that there were 50 foot waves. And is that how it happened? Or did you intentionally ramp things up in your training? I think my sailing, I ramped it up. I mean, I started sailing keelboats when I was in middle school and, and I certainly started doing longer distances. I, you know, my first quote unquote distance race was Port Huron to Alpine or Port Huron to Port Sanilac and then Port Huron Mackinac. And, you know, and then I went to Florida and there were some Florida distance races and then I did a transatlantic and then you, you know, did, you know, you do a round the world race after that, after you've crossed an ocean then okay. You know, I, I like that distance. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think you do. Everything you do is, it's a ramp up. I'm really glad to hear that because it, it makes things, because in the environment, there's so many times that people come back to me and they're like, it's not going to make a difference. And then I feel like the people at the highest level of human achievement are like, it came through little changes and attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Attention to detail and just keeping, keeping on. Katie Pettibone, thank you very much. Thank you. Around the world, sailors see parts of our planet farthest from human establishment. Sadly, I found it's a standard response that they've all seen human junk, however remote they've traveled. When did it become normal that we have polluted every place possible? When will each of us, you, me, all of us, each of us take responsibility? After all, the garbage she saw may well have been something that you paid for. Maybe it was something that I paid for. For the record, on a lighter note, A story is about 10 feet, so those waves that were taller than their 81-foot mast are taller than eight-story buildings. How would you like an eight-story building crashing around you? Staying calm in a situation like that sounds like a tall order, but what you want in a leader. And she achieved that calmness, that leadership, through attention to detail, starting small, and practicing. It's the same as turning the ship around with the environment. Fixing the environment will come through starting where you are and keeping on acting. It worked for her. It'll work for us. feel inspired to then act go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others 
Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.